Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo, the crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. Charlie Bazzina was one of Victoria's top homicide detectives. He spent 38 years in the job. 17 years in the homicide squad and investigated more than 300 suspicious deaths, including 150 murders. These were the killing of Melbourne gangland figure Alphonse Gangitano, the murder of heart surgeon Dr Victor Chang and the death of former test cricketer David Hooks. Charlie's also an author, media commentator, a corporate speaker, a security and risk consultant and private investigator. Today, we'll be focusing on the case involving serial killer Paul Denyer. Welcome to The Crime Couch, Charlie. G'day, Rochelle. Glad to be here. Can you tell me, a long time ago now, why did you become a police officer? Well, it was one of those things. I don't remember recall um, going to school and as a 15-year-old, um, I was watching the programs as we did in those days, Homicide, Division 4, and all this type of thing. And that really uh, caught my fancy of becoming a police officer for the sheer variety of work that was available. So um, as a 15-year-old, I said that's what I wanted to do against the wishes of my parents because uh, they were very protective of the of what they wanted uh, me to do. So, But I said no. Nah. And then um, went to school till I was 17, then I became a police cadet. So I was a police cadet until I uh, got to the age of 18 years of age. And uh, from that point onwards, 38 years later, having retired in uh, December 2009, and my whole life, or 38 years of my life uh, to the community is, is the best thing I ever did. How does a renowned homicide detective like yourself, how do you retire? Well, you don't really retire because when I... Um, you know, there's other stories we can talk about in relation to how I ended up leaving the police force. There was a bit of issues with me and Simon Overland and I've been rotated out of the homicide squad in the, at the time and I didn't want to leave, etc., etc., along with my other comrades and the uh, other team leaders in homicide. And uh, so one thing led to another. So basically I left begrudgingly the police force. So at the end of the day, it was uh, one of those things. I didn't join the police force and said, you know what, I'm going to be a homicide investigator. And that was a pinnacle of my career, I, I, I would say. 17 years there, really dealing with the community. And once left, the, leaving the police force in December 2009, you do what you know best. And that's why I became a private investigator. Initially, I started up a handyman business because I said, well, you know, I've been in the police force all my adult career. What am I going to do? I didn't believe I had any skills as such. Uh, and we underestimate ourselves, all police officers do, from the skills that they do have from life's experiences. So I became a private investigator, and then uh, the media was still quite heavily involved with me, and that, that led to my media involvement to this very day. And um, I still pinch myself, here am I, 11-odd years retired, and uh, to still have a high profile of, you know, and not that we chased it in the police department, because... Uh, as you know, we would do a lot of stand-ups at crime scenes and uh, because you're the face of the particular team and you know, it wasn't Charlie Bazina solving the crime, it was my team of detectives, my team of people, my pathologists, forensic people, but I just happened to be the face of that and that just sort of stuck with the community and the public and they were different days because the community, when we were policing uh, in the homicide squad, there was our five team leaders, 
there were household names and the community would see us, and it's changed dramatically. There is no exposure that we had then that the police have today that they've got, they can put a name to the investigation apart from senior officers. But it's not the senior officers doing the investigations, it's, it's the working detectives, probably from senior sergeants down or sergeants down, and they are the ones that should be speaking to the community, and they're the ones doing the case. You speak to deceased families, uh, which you get a big affiliation with, and your, your relationship with them lasts for years, and that's really where I got my satisfaction and in becoming a private investigator, I have that interaction with the community still because a lot of them still come to me to review suicides of their loved ones, etc. that are investigated. They want me to advise them in relation to any uh, issues they've got with the police and deaths, and that's my specialty is, is death. So I've still had my hand in it, so I really haven't left that particular field. After investigating death and murder, Charlie, for nearly two decades, what has it actually taught you about life? Well, what's just taught me about life, you know, here are, I've got no academic qualifications as such, as, but my life's experiences of, of being a police officer, you know, there's different ranges of the community and the majority and a lot of the police of today deal with mayhem, they deal with the problems of other people, but they, they lose sight of the fact that the majority of the community really support the police department, but they're the quiet majority. So you've got to really learn and understand that uh, because you are dealing with the criminal element, the, the bad people of the whole society, that you don't never lose sight of the fact of the good people that are out there that really support you and you know the satisfactions you get. And you don't look for accolades. You don't look for that pat on the back. You do it because that's your job. And my satisfaction was getting the conviction and uh, getting results. I never say that I gave uh, families closure. I don't give them closure. I give them answers because they want to know, Charlie, why did my daughter, was, why is she murdered? Why was my son murdered, etc.? Well, and give them a reason for it. You never have closure with deaths. And, you know, the interaction of human nature, the humanity itself, the things you've learned and make you a better person. And that goes on to my corporate speaking now in schools trying to teach the young people about decision-making, leadership and the likes. And uh, so all of those skills that I've gained as a police officer has just come from being and doing your job. And I'm so ever grateful for it. Do you think, Charlie, that anyone is capable of murder? Absolutely. People say to me often, you know, what makes a, a killer? Well, any adult, even children, you know, the youngest person I locked up as an investigator was two sisters, a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old sister that they murdered their best friend's mother. And so realistically, you're not born a killer. Some are born bad, like the Dupasses of the world and the Denias of the world, etc. So, you know, others um, either become that or there's other ones that they have the distinction of right and wrong. And these other killers do it either spontaneously uh, and others like the underworld killings, they do it because why do people commit crime? Because they think they can get away with it and underestimate the value and experience of, of the police force we have. And Victoria Police is one of the best in the world. The Homicide Squad, I remember, it was nicknamed the Domestic Squad because often they'd be dealing with deaths which were the result of family violence. Do you agree? What do you think is the motivation behind most murders? It varies. It's greed, revenge, a lot of criminal stuff. And and what you say is right. You know, we were, uh, to expand on what your the the, uh, tag is, we were called the Heavy Domestic Squad because in in my day, in in the 80s when I joined, we were doing a lot of domestic murders where one of the 
partners would be kill the other one and but then that's then graduated into underworld killings we know of today you have seen it in the movies uh, in america and then we've got the underworld factions of killing each other the drug uh, turf wars etc and so forth and so on with the outlaw motorcycle gangs now we've got organized crime it was debated for a long time do we have the mafia in in australia and it was said no all the victoria market murders going way back into the 60s and the likes we're not immune in relation to it so killers come in all, all uh, uh, ranges and even through mothers um, young mums through depression having a baby and they've killed their own baby and the like so there's something that happens either mentally but uh, they're the ones that know right from wrong and, and the ones that do it from either mental impairment or some some issue that they may have, you do support them as best you can. And I've had a number of those cases where you do support them because, you know, you say you, you sit there and say, well, my job is to charge the people who've, who've either killed somebody, but there's reasons behind it. So you are, as an investigator, always looking for that motive. Why would someone want to kill this person? In your time at the Homicide Squad, you dealt with serial killer Paul Charles Denyer. Now, when did you first encounter him? When did this matter come across your desk, Charlie? Well, that was a situation on the 11th of June, 1993. We were the on-call team. I was running the on-call team for the state at the Homicide Squad. And we were called to a place called Lloyd Park out on the outskirts of Frankston and Cranbourne Road. And there was a 18-year-old deceased girl, woman, uh, Elizabeth Stevens. Uh, she'd been found in Lloyd Park with her throat badly cut and uh, a few other injuries to the torso. And you never know where any investigation is going to take you. So we were responding like a normal homicide investigation, uh, not knowing that that was going to be the, the actual start of the serial killing of by Paul Denyer. We just got into that investigation. You start from, uh, here's a young lady that was going to university at Frankston. She was living with her uncle and auntie. And then as you progress your investigation, you look at, obviously, the people close to uh, Elizabeth. We had to look at uh, boyfriends that she may have had, and she's a very naive young girl. And uh, how we knew she'd been to the TAFE library. On that particular day, she left a note for her, her uh, uncle and auntie, and we had to then try and place her because she was on public transport. How did she get back to Lloyd Park? How did she get there? So all these the unknowns, and they were all the unknowns were then filled when we finally apprehended Denya about a month later, his killing spree just went on and it went unabated because we didn't know who we were looking for. That's exactly what I was going to ask you. Was he on your radar? Did he have priors? How did he come to your attention? Well, he was never on our radar. We had no idea whatsoever. Our first breakthrough really came when the next victim, Debbie Freem, 21-year-old young mother, she was reported missing. She went to the milk bar on the 8th of July. So he's gone from the 11th of June, 1993, to about the 8th of July, 1993, before Debbie Freem was actually abducted and her body was then found in similar circumstances on the outskirts. And really the breakthrough came when a couple of days later we found Debbie's motor car uh, at a location in the Frankston area. And so we knew as investigators that the, uh, because the way the seat was, there was some blood in the vehicle, that we thought to ourselves, well, the offender must live within walking distance of where this motor car was. So that was our really first break in the case. And so our plan was then to start doing a door knock within a two kilometre square radius from where that motor car was. Our theory was he would have walked home he or she or whoever the case may be, but a killer was certainly in that area. We were going to door knock every house and account for every teenager person upwards 
of their whereabouts, etc. Because we had nothing else, had nothing else whatsoever. And that was then to be done on the um, 30th of July, some uh, some time later, because we had to get resources together. And that part of the investigation, that's where I shy away from the word elite and homicide of the elite of the, of the police, etc., etc. It's not because you really go to every nook and cranny to find any clue. So we were going to count for every person within that two kilometre square radius because we believed so strongly he lived or she lived in that location. Account for anybody. That would may have taken us six to 12 months or 18 months to account for all those people. And then horror upon horror, it wasn't until the 8th of July we were ongoing. Another team of detectives was then given to investigate Debbie Freem's murder while we were running Elizabeth Stevens' murder. And then it wasn't until the 30th, then of 30th of July, during those two investigations, that horror upon horror, young 17-year-old Natalie Russell was reported missing. I can remember hearing and reading about your investigation, and there's certainly one unsung hero in this, a postal worker who was delivering letters and spotted this unusual guy in a vehicle, and that person was out the front of the third victim, Natalie Russell's residence, I believe. Is that your recollection as well? Well, that's where it comes, and we and to this very day we keep on saying the police can't do it all. There's only very few eyes and ears of police out in the community. It's the community that we rely upon to solve crime. Police forever are saying we need the assistance of the community. And because at that particular stage with public uh, awareness of the murder of Elizabeth Stevens and uh, Debbie Freem, that really shuts Frankston down. So we had, uh, unbeknownst to us, we had the whole community on alert. They were really scared. Women were scared to be going out in the community. So they were going to shut down virtually Frankston. And it's interesting to note that Elizabeth Stevens, uh, her murder was late in the evening. Debbie Freem was, uh, again, earlier in the evening. And the bravado was growing. And then we had the missing person of Natalie Russell. Probably at three o'clock, she was supposed to be coming home from school just off Sky Road. And off Sky Road, is uh, there's a track between two golf courses. That track has actually been uh, honoured in Natalie's memories. It's now Nat's track, and there's now a plaque there that was only uh, unveiled again just recently by the council. They've upgraded the track. So it's a, a great uh, memory for, for Natalie Russell. So she was reported missing about three o'clock but unbeknownst to us that Paul Denyer was actually on the prowl looking for his third victim he was actually sitting in Sky Road in his little motor car no no houses nearby apart from this track uh, near the golf courses in Sky Road and uh, the postmistress lady was delivering letters and for no reason at all she saw a, a male person sitting in this car so she rang the police and for no other reason apart from being on alert from the two previous murders because at that stage Natalie hadn't been reported missing and two young constables uh, came along and they checked the motor car, which had no occupant in it. They just took the registration details and just checked, like, nothing suspicious. Unbeknownst to them, Denya was that person that the post the lady saw, and he was actually down the track at that stage killing Natalie, but they weren't to know that. So they finished their tour of duty that evening, went home. That evening, um, Natalie was reported missing. Her body was then found off this track, off Sky Road. It was in a little, uh, couple of fences were cut with the, the cyclone fence with a little culvert under the bushes. And this, the second place it was cut is where Natalie's body was, still in school uniform. Again, same injuries to her in the neck. And it wasn't until the next morning that these two young constables come and saw us and said, oh, look, uh, boss, we, uh, we checked the motor car at that location. 
and that we put two and two together. We got the registration details. Sure enough, come up to Paul Charles Denyer. Where did Denyer live? He lived within our catchment of those two kilometres square where we were going to do our search, that tick boxes. So we had to formulate a plan of how we are going to do about it, how we are going to link him, because the whole purpose of investigations is to link the offender to the murder scenes. We found out that he was living with a young lady, and even though we had a um, criminal profiler prior to that, trying to give us an idea of the person we were looking for, we believe that the offender had a hatred of women, yet here is Daniel living with a lady. So, And you really don't put that much weight at that stage on criminal profiling as such. But we went about our normal hard slog business and from your gut feelings. Eventually got Paul to come in and see us at Frankston Police Station. I wasn't part of the interview team, but uh, we were all outside looking at a monitor. He was actually interviewed for some four hours by Rod Wilson and another detective and made denials, yet had injuries to his hands. And as I said earlier about me being the face of a... Uh, team of investigators that included pathologists and we still to this very day have uh, the most significant Victorian pathology area that we have in the world. They're, they're so renowned, our pathologists. And this particular pathologist was uh, doing his postmortem on uh, Natalie. One of the most interesting things I've found is that you said it was comprehensive four-hour interview. Initially, Denia didn't confess, did he? And I think one of the things you do as an investigator, particularly when you're interviewing someone like this, is to build rapport. Is that what Rod was doing? Yeah, very much so. And you don't know what's going through his head, and it's amazingly, he was given this caution, and he answered questions. And amazingly and cunningly, he put himself at every crime scene. Where were you, um, you know, Natalie's... Uh, uh, big pardon. Elizabeth Stevens' body was found. They, it went through systematically as you do. You've planned your interview. Oh, look, um, yeah, on that day I was, and this is a month previous. Now, how does someone recall where they were a month ago? But then you put himself in that location because it was near his mother's place. Again, with Debbie Freem, he put himself in that location where she was abducted near the Seaford Railway Station where Debbie went to the milk bar. I was walking along because I was meeting my girlfriend at, at the railway station. And unbeknownst to us, that prior to abducting Debbie Freem, that he, he abducted another woman off the railway station at that stage, which we were unaware of, or Rod was none of us were aware of it, until then he actually told us about it. Um, and then uh, he said, well, well, you knew I was in Sky Road because you checked my motor car there. But he gave an excuse for, but why was your car there? It overheated. And then the crunch came, and whilst the investigation is going ahead, the postmortem was being conducted on Natalie's body, and a piece of ridged skin was located in Natalie's throat or in a mouth somewhere that was ridged skin. Now, ridged skin can only come from your hands or your feet. So what was a piece of ridged skin? It's probably 0.1 millimetre of skin by, again, the same dimensions. And this is how acute, when you've got jagged skin at that location, to find this little piece of pathologist was just absolutely sensational. We thought, okay, he's got injuries to his fingers. That's got ridged skin. Then a question was put to him after all his denials and quite happy to help us with our, our answers. Look, we, we need to have a forensic procedure. And for, for forensic procedures, you know, people may not realise, you need to get their permission to have a medical examination, get their hair sample done, blood tests, etc., etc., or for DNA and build the case up. And, and surprisingly, he gave us permission. Now, had he not given us permission to do that, we would then have to get a 20 or 30 page affidavit then to take to a judge or a magistrate to try and convince the magistrate that he was a relevant suspect and then to be able to do it. And we could then take it by force. We could use reasonable force, but we didn't go down that path. And as you said, building that rapport, he was then taken to, he wanted to go and uh, to the toilet 
and a different detective took him to the toilet. So that's when we learned he didn't have a really good rapport with the other detective that was in the interview room with Rod Wilson. So while they were in the toilet and the detective was there with the escort and, and safety issue, he looked across at the detective, saw he's wearing a crucifix, and Daniel said, are you a Christian? He said, yes, I am. And he just said, I did the three of them. I killed those three women. Bang. And that's when a process... And that caused us problems because it was off tape. It wasn't recorded anywhere. And as a, an investigator, you're thinking about defence processes all the time. How am I going to be attacked two years' time at the Supreme Court by a defence barrister? And I could see it. A defence barrister would have said to us, well, hang on. So you interviewed my client for, for four hours. He was helpful. Yes, he was. He was dis- answered all your questions, did he? Yes, he did. So you're telling me that he, you then took him off tape, waiting for this doctor to come for the examination, which he gave you permission, again, very helpful. And then you're trying to tell this jury that out of the blue, my client made full admissions to the three murders, trying to put in a fact that their defence would have been that we've either coerced him, we've threatened him, so we then had to have a go through a certain process to then adopt that confession back on, in, on a tape. I can't imagine what that must feel like to actually hear him confess what was his motivation, did he claim, for, for killing those three women? Oh, the euphoria, you know, you had to maintain ourselves because here we have that we, we finally got a killer. We had no idea who it was. We're, we're getting some answers for the deaths of these three lovely ladies. And then during the interview is when he said to Rod about uh, the abduction of this other woman who got off the train and she, she escaped from him. And then uh, we were unaware of that because we couldn't, we didn't put two and two together and we then learned about that attempted abduction. So that's how fourth and fourth rider he was with us. But uh, then, during the, he then the next four or five hours after that, he made full admissions and told us how he killed each each particular girl and woman, and then the reasons behind it. Because he just said, "Well, why did you?" Uh, he saw Elizabeth Stevens get off the bus, and he was in the area, as he said was true. He was there to see his mum, uh, or go to his mother's house. Saw Elizabeth get off the bus. Um, and we'd already travelled the bus. We could never get a witness to, to identify Elizabeth off the bus. How did she get there? It was a, a very stormy evening. She got off the bus. He then went behind her. He had a makeshift knife he put to her back, walked her to Lloyd Park, and they sat there and, he, and probably speaking to her for about an hour or two hours with her. And, you know, this is where we don't know what we would then do, but he then told us that Elizabeth wanted to go to the toilet and relieve herself. So they were sitting near the goalpost at Lloyd Park, and Elizabeth went away and uh, relieved herself, and then she came back. She came back and sat down with him. Denia was a very obese person. She was a very slight girl, but she either believed that he only wanted to talk to her, but she came back. She could have ran away, and she'd be alive today. And through that naivety that she came back and sat with him and that was the end of that where he then killed her didn't make any attempt to cover her body at all Debbie Frame saying why did you do it oh the urge the urge started coming up for me to kill somebody and then when we learnt that Elizabeth wasn't really his first victim prior to Elizabeth on the 11th of June sometime prior to that he wanted to kill a girl that he knew broke into a flat she wasn't home, so he killed the cats. And then he, he smeared these words on the bathroom, etc. But, you know, we didn't go back far enough. Analytically, we do it today, but then we didn't have the analysts that we do have today. So he couldn't marry it all up. So Daniel was sentenced to life in prison with an on-parole period of 30 years. His release date is next June. Will he be released, Charlie? I don't believe he will. 
and I think if there's any um, sense of gravity by this uh, government, they will then legislate, as they have in the past with the other people of, of that ilk, that they will enforce legislation to keep him in custody because, well, during his trial, just to go back a step, his first trial, he pleaded guilty to the three murders and a very brave judge gave him three life imprisonments, no minimum. But because of precedent, an appeal was lodged, second appeal, the appeal got up, he then um, was given three life sentences with a minimum of 30 years, which basically works out 10 years of life, which made him eligible for parole in 1923, uh, 2023, as you say. So I'm very confident that the parole will come up and then uh, whether they, he's been, well, hasn't been really a model prisoner as such, that little I've been hearing of, but it'll be up to the parole board to either say, yes, we'll give you parole, but I think prior to that, there'll be certainly mechanisms put in place to address the government to say we need specific legislation to keep this guy in custody because during the trial, psychologists and psychiatrists, experts have said this person will always kill. He's not going to get any better. So do you think for one minute that the government would allow a person of 10 years ilk to, to be released back into the community on parole or not? doesn't matter. And I think it's, it's incumbent upon them to legislate that because the court's didn't. Their hands were tied. I get critical sometimes, of course, but their hands were tied because of precedent. They had no other option. Now the government has to now step in and make specific legislation, keep him in jail and keep our community safe. Finally, Charlie, Paul Charles Daniel now identifies as a woman. He's hated women and that's why he's chosen to kill those three. What are your thoughts on that now that he's actually identifying as a female? Well, he identified very soon after his incarceration, so much so that he was getting uh, makeup being brought to him and in, inside jail by some corrupt uh, warders, etc., etc. And he wanted to get some surgery done, etc. And then he put his hair in pigtails. And, and surprisingly, he wouldn't speak to anyone that didn't address him as Pauline. Ultimately, you know, he was interviewed by other police while he was in custody for other murders. Um, in, in particular, Sarah McDermott was killed at Cannock Railway Station, which I was involved in. You know, where uh, the fact that he now identifies uh, as a woman, I think, further clarifies the issue that this guy still got some mental issues that hopefully will support the legislation being addressed by the government to keep him in to say, well, this guy doesn't know what he wants. He's a hater of women. He lived he lived with a woman. Um, when we raided his flat prior to his arrest, okay, we found one pornographic magazine, but other than that, he was a normal citizen, no prior convictions as such, never on our radar, uh, and that what makes him more dangerous because... Uh, He's not out there. And the scary part about it is that there's other Paul Charles Denyer in our community. Thank you very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch today, Charlie. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on the Crime Couch. Mm-hmm.